Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. This week on the podcast, we will be exploring the issue of political polarization. Um, Our divide in American politics has become very deep and very um, um, potentially irreversible. I don't know. You tell me. Um, But I'm speaking to Ali Goldsworthy, um, the brilliant um, founder of the Depolarization Project based out of Stanford um, in California. Um, Ali is a UK person um, who I knew when she lived here, um, who's now relocated there and is doing some really great work thinking about um, what is driving um, the psychology and sociology of polarization in our politics, both in the UK and in the US, um, and I suppose globally, although we talk mostly about the UK and the US. Um, it's a really interesting one and, and quite a challenging one. It winds up being quite a challenging conversation for me because, as I say up front in the interview, it's something I really struggle with, um, the necessity of taking people on the other side of the aisle at face value, treating them with respect. Um, I agree with that in principle, when it, but when it comes down to it, I often find it really difficult. And that's, um, as Ali will say, not unusual um, in politics generally, but even especially for liberal leaning people, um, liberals are less likely to um, be friends with people from the other side, less likely to um, say that they're fundamentally good people with whom they just disagree. Um, and, and there's some really interesting reasons why that is and, and what that means. So um, a really interesting conversation. I also wanted to explore with Ali um, what, what polarization looks like within the party um, and whether that's something we should be concerned about. So stay tuned for that. Um, but first, a, a quick news roundup. Um, um, as usual, there's a lot going on out there. Um, things are heating up here. Um, one thing uh, to mention, we talked in the last podcast about um, the Democratic uh, DNC debate debate around the debate, the discussion whether or not to have a climate change focused debate. Um, over this past week, there was in fact a climate change focused forum um, on CNN. It was a 10 hour back to back candidate session in which each candidate or at least a number of candidates um, were given the opportunity of hosting an individual town hall um, interviewed by moderators and with questions from the audience and so forth. Um, and they were able to explore more about our climate climate change policy. Um, I did not watch it because it is 10 hours of television on climate change. So as much as I would have liked to see a climate change debate, uh, that was a little much for me. Um, but um, check it out, have a look. I think Elizabeth Warren had some really interesting points in there um, that were widely shared about the necessity of of getting away from thinking about consumer choices and thinking more about structures and industries and the fact that there are only three industries that are account for about 70% of the, of the carbon we're producing. So um, individual choice is not going to make the difference here. We need to think about regulation and we need to think about regulation in smart ways. And there are some different ways we can do that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit this week about the Republican primary. Uh, As we've covered in the previous podcasts um, at various times, Trump is overwhelmingly likely to win his primary, no matter um, which other candidates are running against him, because he is sadly very popular within his party, um, possibly in part because a lot of people who are critical or concerned about Trump within the Republican or the right-wing fold um, have may have already left the party or um, no longer be engaged with the party. Um, however, we did have a relatively recent new entry into the race um, on the right, um, and that is former Congressman Joe Walsh. Uh, Joe Walsh is kind of a dick. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. Um, And it's really interesting that he's positioning himself as being a Trump critic um, because he's said and done some very kind of racist and incendiary things in the past. Um, But, um, and he has kind of made his career as almost a very sort of Trumpian. He's currently um, a radio host, I believe, um, and in a sort of very Trumpian populist manner. Um, But he thinks Trump has gone too far and now he's being quite critical of him. So that That's quite interesting, especially given that the other candidate um, in the race 
um, against Trump is uh, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, who is much more in the moderate um, kind of New England wing of the party um, and really coming at Trump from a, a traditional conservative point of view. Joe Walsh is, um, you know, some would say he's as Trump as Trump, but now he's trying to say Trump's, Trump's too Trump. So um, it's kind of going to be interesting. It will be interesting to see. Um, Joe Walsh got a lot of media coverage when he entered, um, but I think there's little reason to believe that he will necessarily pull a lot of voters away from Trump. Um, but let's wait and see what happens. Um, speaking of unlikely candidates in the race, um, many months ago, um, we spoke about uh, Starbucks founder and CEO, former CEO Howard Schultz and his um earlier statements that he was looking to run as an independent candidate um, for president. Um, he is not doing that anymore. <laughs> Howard Schultz had taken the uh, summer off, um, basically on holiday, on vacation. Um, I think he was also dealing with some health problems and that he'd he'd had some, some back trouble. So he was just kind of focusing on doing that. Um, and then to no one's particular surprise has announced this week that he um, is definitely not going to be running. He says, quote, um, one of the reasons uh, for that is that, quote, not enough people today are willing to consider backing an independent candidate because they fear doing so might lead to reelecting a uniquely dangerous incumbent president. I would entirely agree with that sentiment, Howard Schultz. That is one of my major concerns. Uh, so thanks for not being the independent candidate who did that. Um, it's interesting that when Schultz announced his run, he seemed to attract absolutely virtually zero support from anyone um, and made a lot of Democrats very, very angry. Angry, um, with the suggestion that he um, could potentially be the candidate to um, serve as a spoiler in the race. Um, he doesn't seem to have much of a natural constituency. He's, of course, never held public office, um, doesn't really have a lot of experience of running. And, and to me, I think my other criticism of him is he didn't really seem to have um, specific things that he wanted to achieve with his election. Um, he talks a lot about wanting to kind of change the political system, but um, apart from not wanting us to cut taxes, uh, not wanting us to raise taxes on millionaires and billionaires such as himself, um, he didn't really put out a detailed policy agenda, just, you know, Democrats are bad, Republicans are bad. So um, I don't think that's a great strategy, but um, thanks for playing Howard Schultz. We have some lovely parting gifts. Bye-bye. Um, in other news, last and last and perhaps most troublingly, the Federal Elections Commission, the FEC, uh, which is responsible for um, enforcement and uh, and and transparency and, and monitoring of um, candidates and election campaigns in the U.S., uh, is no longer functioning. It is um, Trump has not. Trump has not nominated enough candidates and the Senate has not approved enough candidates um, to replace the people who have left the commission. And therefore, um, the commission no longer has a quorum and it cannot function without a quorum, as a result of which it is um, it, it, it hasn't completely shut down. So it is still kind of processing information and it's receiving candidate um, data as you know candidates and, and campaigns are required to, to submit to the FEC. But what it isn't doing is its enforcement function. It isn't conducting investigations um, into allegations of campaign irregularities. How concerned we should we be about this? Well, quite concerned, I would say. Um, it's uh, not good. Um, it's not what we want to see. The last time this happened was in 2008, where there was a brief period when the commission was um, also out of service when George W. Bush and the and the Democratic Senate then were also um, unable to come to agreement on appointing new commissioners. Um, in this case, uh, it's it's tricky. Um, Trump has only nominated one candidate. There are three vacancies on the commission. Trump's only nominated one candidate. If that one candidate were approved, um, the commission could could nominally function again. Um, the difficulty being Trump hasn't put forward any Democratic candidates. And traditionally, the FEC is you nominate a candidate 
one each. So you nominate one number, one Democrat, one Republican. That's customarily how it's been. Um, right now we don't have a Democrat or another candidate to nominate. The law requires that the FEC be balanced. Um, so you can't have, well, it doesn't require that it be balanced. It requires that it have no more than three members from each of the, from, from, from the same political party. In theory, Trump could try and nominate someone from another political party, a libertarian, for example, and deny Democrats a place on the FEC, um, which he might do. Um, but for the time being, um, the cynic in me or the realist, the person who watches the news in me, might say that he's quite happy to have the FEC non-functioning and not in not conducting their um, enforcement actions. Uh, so this is one to watch really closely um, and speak up about um, and, uh, and, and be concerned about. So keep your eyes on that. Okay. Um, so without further ado, over to my interview with Ali, which was just fascinating. So I want to welcome to the podcast, the wonderful Ali Goldsworthy um, out of Stanford, California. Um, Ali is a um, founder, co-founder of a wonderful um, project called the Depolarization Project, um, which is looking at how we can um, tackle issues of polarization in our society. Um, and I'll let her explain a little bit more about that. And I think you've also got a, another new project that you want to talk about, which sounds fascinating. Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Karen. It's it's lovely to be here. So yeah, I'm founder and CEO of the Depolarization Project, and we exist to try and help depolarize projects. The clue politics. The clue is is in the name, and particularly, I try and work with um, leaders on whatever level, from uh, a local community one up to to national, to try and see how their behaviour and what they can do can make it easier for people to talk to people who are from a different political persuasion to themselves, which is something that people are struggling with an awful lot on on both sides of the Atlantic I'm also I know super I am struggling with it so yeah it's really tough know. and actually saying you're struggling with it does help um it's a first stage you know acceptance um and I'm really lucky to be an advisor at Stanford to a new conflict resolution and uh, political depolarization center that is going to be running for at least three years based at the King Center um at both the business school and the politics school Fantastic. That sounds amazing. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to you today, as we'll come on to both from a point of view of thinking about how to talk to people who don't vote Democrat within the context of politics, but also um, I'm curious your thoughts about how we can manage possible polarization within the Democratic primary. Um, but before we do that, Ali, you are a British citizen, as people can probably tell from your accent, living in California. I am an American citizen living in the UK. So we have opposite and matching uh, cultural backgrounds. Um, how do you find the differences in terms of thinking about polarization from a UK and a US perspective? Well, I mean, the the easy one is that um, in the US, it's what you would call effective polarization. So polarization on party political lines. On the whole, mm -hmm. people identify very strongly as Democrat or as Republican. And there aren't really, I mean, you do get some splits within that, but that's like the core cleavage. Um, whereas in the UK, that has begun to change, and partly because we have a multi-party system. And I am, I'm a British citizen, but I'm Welsh. So um, that means that I've always operated in a four-party system with like... Um, nationalists as well. So that it, I've never defined as conservative or, or labor or seen it through that two party lens. But now rather than it being about party politics in the UK, it divides on a Brexit line. So it's are you a Remainer or are you a Lever? And that is starting to become an increasingly important part of people's identity. And that just obviously doesn't exist at all in the states that divide. Not at all. Although I do think there is a certain open versus closed dichotomy that is showing up in American politics, particularly and somewhat across party lines in that there's a sort of pro-free trade, pro-globalization wing of both Republican and Democratic parties that seems to be at odds with some of the kind of the views of a more closed side. So, and I think there's parallels to that, but at this moment that that hasn't broken out into a kind of cross party, any kind of par like partisan breakdown. It's, it's right now still very much within the parties that seems to be happening. At least that's yeah. my perception. No, that's absolutely right. And if you ask people who they, how they identify particularly, even many of those free traders, you know, people would still say, or people who are very pro NAFTA and hesitant about some of what President Trump is up to within the Republican Party, they tend to still identify as a Republican before they identify as a free trader. Yeah. 
and uh, but but that's not necessarily the case in the UK. And it's interesting to know whether maybe that's that's a future that America might be looking at, or whether you know the UK is an anomaly. I suspect that the UK is an anomaly. I can't think of the issue that would become all-consuming in America that would reach so broadly and holistically in the same way that membership of the EU does, that would be subject to a referendum which would reinforce people's voting habits in that way. I would like to think that America would not walk the same path that Britain has. But, you know, idiocy can can exist in all nationalities (laughs) equally. Surely if the last few years have taught us anything, that is the key lesson. Yeah, yes, yes, it can. That is the great one of the great the great unifier of British politics for whether you're a Remainer or a Lever, is that everybody thinks that David Cameron did a terrible thing and behaved very badly. That is like if you there's a lot of evidence that if you start a conversation with somebody that you disagree with and you find an area of common ground, um, that you'll have a better conversation afterwards. And I tend to reach for David Cameron was a bit of a moron um, oh. as as my conversations because everybody's like, Yeah, he really was. Yes. And the <laughs> have completely opposite reasons for believing that but at least we all agree that he's a moron yes i know everybody buys his book when it comes out in two weeks time <laughs> good luck promoting that excellent fun for david sorry guy um so i think it's probably worth us just taking a step back before we dig into the, the so further thoughts about polarization and i'm just Give us the baseline. Depolarization, obviously, is the the efforts of the work you're doing. Why do you perceive polarization as a problem? What is the what is the negative externality, so to speak, that that polarization creates in politics? Well, so I suppose that the first thing to say is that there's been a growing, or there is a growing evidence base of. Uh, political polarization that exists in many liberal democracies, but let's keep focused on America. So it's it's increased by about 20 percentage points, how tolerant people are of others. If you look at the American National Election Survey, and then if you start to look at other walks of life, you know, sort of how tolerant would you be about a neighbor being from a different political party or about how many people are married to people from different political persuasions? That's dropped very significantly. Or how would you feel about a, a son or daughter? There's, it's hard to measure polarization, but at most indices you could imagine show it is getting worse. And to me, that's a problem for, for a couple of reasons, which is, one, what does that do to the fabric of your society if you can't talk to people who are politically different to you or you don't want to spend time with them or you can't find them attractive? That you know, There's there's all sorts of ways that we view segregation as generally not a great thing. And that, to me, applies in politics as well. That doesn't mean you have to have a perfectly matched groups or you know people should feel guilty um, if they don't have friends from different political persuasions. But if that becomes endemic, then it clearly becomes a problem because how do you then reach consensus and try and resolve issues? Because the the system is set up in America that in effect, it tries to create a center ground where people from different political parties will work together to make things happen unless people have got majorities in both the the Senate and the House and the presidency. So uh, because that doesn't happen, like politics doesn't really function very effectively. And that becomes a not a huge issue in the short term, but if it becomes protracted, how do you solve out really knotty issues? Like how do you fund social security? What is your attitude to immigration? How do you balance your relationship with international partners? They all start to really fray um, and that becomes a, a, and then civil discourse with us and people don't really want to get involved in politics or if they do, they do where where I would argue we've got to now, which is they reinforce the positions they've got. So you end up with like this spiral, this death spiral of groups moving away from each other. So I think that's a very accurate description of where we are. Um, And I think particularly you talking about us being unable to solve problems really resonates because I think we are seeing so many instances of political gridlock in America where there are problems that everyone agrees are problems and everyone broadly agrees on the solutions, but we just can't get them done. I'm thinking of things like just infrastructure and kind of basic good governance things that, um, that used to happen almost under the radar, but now seem kind of entrenched and gridlocked and impossible to move forward on. Why is that? How did we get to this point? What accounts for all this rising polarization and and the problems that it's causing? Is there... Uh-oh. 
gosh. So I always <laughs> just I always, yeah, I know. Answers on a postcard. So the, the postcard answer is that I describe this as a patchwork problem with a patchwork solution. So part of what causes the problem is that people look for simple solutions and like this is what did it. This is why we're going to solve out. These are the baddies, and this is who we're going to take out, or the one thing we're going to change that will make us powerful again. Um, and actually, it's very complex and very multifaceted. So you could look at everything from education and how people meet each other through to planning and how people no really no longer really live next door to each other you know and obviously that then ties into and planning I mean development for American listeners so how you know I mean I'm sat in Mountain View in California this is not an area of men, where many Republicans live you know and why is that or it's not an area where people who you know I look down on El Camino Real and Mainly, it's full of teachers and nurses sat in RVs because they can't afford to get a house here. You know, like what does that what does that do to things? Like people often reach for online and social media. My personal view is that while that is a contributor to what is going on and has certain, certainly added velocity to it, the filter bubbles argument is overdone. Facebook is not the only reason that we have polarization and this started beforehand. You know, and and you could keep going and looking at lots of different bits of our lives and what's caused us to segregate in many ways and not be able to spend time with other people um, and to, to enjoy it. Um, and yet, yeah, like, I think all of them build up into the place where we are now, which is why it's such a hard and challenging thing to undo. So I think we're not going to obviously undo all of the underlying structural and societal factors that are behind this. Um, and there is no obviously simpler, simpler, obvious solution to kind of what are very deeply entrenched tendencies. But are there things at an individual at or, a or at a policy level that we can be doing as a nation to try and de-emphasize these, pro these part of polarization trends? Yeah, I do think there are some things that people could do. And also politicians could start to look for things, particularly in the in the context um, uh, of what's going on. So one is to be uh, very, very bluntly, mindful of your own behavior. And there is quite a bit of evidence that suggests that educated liberals are more entrenched and less open-minded to people having different experiences than any other group in the population, which might be slightly uncomfortable for your listeners, but yeah. roll with it. The evidence is there, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, but the, the first thing is, I suppose, um, uh, obviously to seek out people with, with different views to your own and be mindful of that and read things from, from other places, but really to listen. You know, mm -hmm. so there's actually there's a thing called an illusion of explanatory depth, um, which exists in, in psychology, which is people think they know a lot more about an issue than they do. And they try and blag it and bluster through. And politics often engenders that. Let's face it, when you're doing like media interviews, you're suddenly asked that you don't know much about and you take a punter and answer that actually saying, I don't know. Or I want to hear more about that should be an okay thing for people to say, and we should celebrate it a little bit. I think that's that's a really interesting point to pause on for a second because I completely relate to that instinct to just jump in and say things. And I do a lot of work with the media, which often will ask me to speak on things that are outside of my comfort zone. I do try to not let myself get steered into that territory, but nothing in our media is set up for that. Everything is set up in the media for very clear, definitive and declarative declarative answers without any uncertainty. It's extremely difficult to find instances of media outlets that will allow for that kind of uncertainty in a comment. Yeah, well, and more than that, as an audience, we don't tend to reward it. And I mean, part of that is just because, yeah. you know, if I was speaking, they'd be like, well, a, a, an interviewer, someone says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, to lots of questions. It's not a very interesting <laughs> you, interview. Yeah, you just they've got a point, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. <laughs> but there is, um, something about as an audience we are terrible at rewarding people who behave in that way we look for gotcha moments and that acts as a real disincentive to people to do that and additionally while we're talking about incentives and how like we as a general public we don't tend to engage well with people who are trying to be civil and reach across the aisle and I was very strict to like examples from different sides of the Atlantic. So um, when it was all kicking off with Christine Blasey Ford and with the confirmation hearings, which were, you know, for a lot of people, very, to use a, a very progressive word, very triggering um, yeah. in, in different ways and all sorts of memories and, and things like that. When there were Republicans who were wavering in whether they would support her or what they would say or whether they would 
um, uh, support the nomination to the Supreme Court, the pressure that was piled on them and the hostility towards them was ginormous. And that to me is not persuasive. It was it was quite uncomfortable for me to watch. And I say this as someone who's spoken out about being sexually assaulted in politics. Like it was, it, it was it was very it was very challenging and i just thought ineffective and there was no it demonstrated no reward for people trying to give up on very partisan views and reach out and i just thought that that was really short sighted and, and a a maybe less inflammatory or well-known example is this week the MP for Cheltenham in the UK who's a, a member of the government and a conservative um, which is not my own politics but um, there were some protesters who came outside his office and and challenged him and it got quite aggressive and this is because they're talking about suspending parliament and people didn't agree with that um, and he to his credit he came out of his office and talked to very hostile crowd outside and engaged with them and there was so it, the split in how people reacted to that to me was very interesting was a few people were like actually good on you thank you for coming out and engaging and listening to us and some people were just kept going and kept heckling and kept heckling and I just think where does that heckling get us yeah. nowhere you know and and don't be those people and the temptations when you are involved in an organization is to support your own in-group with in-group and out-group hate and to stick in your own position when actually it can be harder and we should get better rewarding people who think carefully and reflect i think let me just put myself because i i completely hear what you're saying but then on the other hand if I can put myself in the mindset of a um, liberal leaning um, leftist person who might um, have tendencies towards intolerance to other points of view, which um, sometimes I am, I'm not going to lie. Um, I think part of where it's sometimes coming from, and you allude to it when you talk about the Christine Blasey Ford, quite a lot of the time what I see from people on the left in terms of how they find it difficult to engage with people on the other side of the issue is it doesn't feel like a policy question it feels like a threat to their personhood um yeah. or their identity and it's particularly around issues of gender or race which is where some of the worst american polarization takes place um to welcome someone into the fold who has previously been unwelcoming to the personhood or the the humanity of a minority group such as lgbt americans or um such as women who have suffered sexual assault it feels like a compromise even though actually it's a victory um, and I think that's a lot of where the emotion is coming from is, is, is it feels to me like sometimes it's hard to welcome into the fold people who very recently might have been saying things that are not just politically different than you, but actually devaluing to yourself or to people that you care about as human beings. Yeah, and well, and actually, in some ways, you've started to hit the nail on the head on um, on things about how progressives tend to identify is yeah. along moral lines. Yes, and morality becomes much more important to them. So, if your listeners are familiar with John Height's work um, and moral foundation theory, he sort of explains that maybe conservatives actually there's more things that influence their behavior and it's clearly some broad brushstrokes here but for example things about like the role of faith and if you believe that there's an afterlife how does that affect how you exist and you behave in this one or how does that affect your policy towards forgiveness whereas actually if you're much more like no like this is just wrong like it's clearly not okay you're more likely to hang out on the progressive end of the spectrum and yeah. that means that people don't really they, they just miss each other all the time as a consequence. So your explanation of people just finding it very difficult to see somebody as where they've held very difficult, different or very challenging views, for example, on um, gay rights or on gender issues or race issues, like to some conservatives, that's just not as important to their view of the whole person. It's looked in a, in a broader way. And that's very often where the, the miss comes. But what I would say as well is people are really bad at acknowledging when they've changed their minds. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not as familiar with the US stats, but in the UK, like it used to be 20, 25 years ago that only... 15, 20% of people were in favor of gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And now you're really hard pushed to find anybody who tells you that they were against gay marriage. And the yeah. stats simply say that, like, that must be a really common journey for people to have gone on. So why don't we talk about it? 
you know and the yeah. same thing applies to the iraq war can you find anybody now who is like saying yes i was totally in favor of the iraq war <laughs> i thought it was a fantastic piece of foreign policy i mean like there's some who are very tied to the decision who tend not to but like yeah. you know everyone's suddenly clamoring to well i always had my doubts or or whatever and why yeah. can't they just say do you know what i got that wrong and i learned from it yeah because absolutely lots of us have Right. And why is that so hard for people to do? And I'd love to see a politician experiment with that and see what happened. Mm. I think that would be a, in the context of a democratic primary. That would be a really interesting thing to do. And maybe Joe Biden should think about doing it in the context of the Anita Hill hearings yeah. and how he behaved there. Like that to me would be a fairly easy way for him to deal with it. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Joe Biden because he was the person that was that was coming to mind. In fact, he did have a question in one of the debates specifically about the Iraq war, which you referenced, and his previous support for the resolution um, and what he thought about it. And I felt like he didn't quite nail the answer. Um, the way he approached it was by saying, well, when I voted, I was voting to trust that the president would follow a good process, but then he didn't. And then he also said, but when I became Barack Obama's vice president, um, he put me in charge of ending the war, which seemed like a kind of deviation from the the, the yeah. original question. Um, what would be a good answer? Just, you know, for example, how how would be a good way of talking through something? You know, we're talking about the deaths of, of thousands of people, thousands of Americans and potentially hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, a very consequential policy decision about which people have strong opinions. Um what would be the what would be a good model for how to build an answer that talks about how you changed your mind? So I think that's a great question. So the first thing I should say is that there's also a growing body of work um, that shows that apologies don't pay off in politics at the minute. Um, or they haven't historically. So saying sorry for something doesn't get you anywhere, which is why people double down all the time, even though they're clearly wrong. President Trump is a fairly classic example of this um, on, a, on a fairly regular basis. But oh gosh, I that's so depressing. So do apologies give you no credit? No, in fact, the opposite. Ah, painful. Right. Um, and that applies for people's own things. So the reason I think Biden probably didn't go further is like actually had they lined up people to say this is great to set the mood music immediately after like this is really good that he's acknowledged that um and to go from there because unless we find a way for those kind of things to start um paying off like people aren't going to do it it's not just about how biden could have answered that question it's about some of the follow-through afterwards and how people respond and engage to it and the thing with the primary um uh, the primary process is that the incentives are clearly for Warren, for example, to really push much harder on that and to say like, well, it's great that he's done this, but if you really wanted someone who was truly with you, then people still need to stay with me and to keep identifying with me. So like, I think the thing is, is that the way that politics is set up makes it really hard to answer that question in an effective way. If I was and I think also because he's the front runner, there's very little incentive for him to go for broke and to take risks. But if he was going to, then I would have just said something like, I probably would have begun with a story or asked the, whoever asked the question for more information about it. And I would have talked about this person helped persuade me. And it was listening to a view that I had not previously heard. And this is what I would change in as a consequence and I am a better legislator for it I would like to hear from everybody else on this platform about a time they have changed their mind and why mm -hmm. and that I think would be the only way that he could deal with it and it would be really interesting to see how that uh, not just interesting I think he would find that a lot of his the other people who were on the platform with him that evening would have struggled to answer that question because people yeah. do struggle to answer that question about tell me a time you've changed your mind and why yeah it's it's interesting actually because as you were talking, I was reflecting on when Obama talked about um, changing his own views on gay marriage and came out in support of um, same same sex marriage. He followed a model quite similar to that. In fact, he talked about the people who changed his mind were his daughters and the reasons why that he found their persuade their, their them persuasive was because of the parents of their friends who were same-sex couples and the direct experience that he had of his daughters knowing same-sex families and respecting them and how he had to so that it just like it struck me that that's that's kind of what he was doing was he was not he was saying not just i changed my mind but here are the people that i talked to here's how they influenced me um and that's the journey that I went on. So it's maybe it's more about the how rather than the what. Yeah, there's definitely some of that. And what I find interesting is, and there's certainly something about how people use children in this debate. 
or mm-hmm. children in general in, in in political campaigning. And I think Obama was fairly careful about it, or people often are from a privacy point of view. But actually, it's much hard, like implicit in that is it's the future generation who are telling me this. These people are yeah. good people. I can't be awful because I'm listening to my children and what they're telling me. Right. You know? There's a meta-narrative and to it. <laughs> it. Exactly, with what's going on. And Trump does do some, like, you know, like he uses his children who by all accounts, everybody says are extremely well-mannered and very pleasant, you know, they're like, well, if he he can't be that bad a person if he's brought up kids that are this good. Yeah. You know, like that's a lot of the reason that his children play such a large part in his campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Although anyway. Yes, <laughs> the- I know there is a there is a bigger discussion there. But if you go back to like 2016, why was it that Ivanka and Eric and all of this kind of why was it that they were so effective as messengers for his mm. what he was saying? You know, because mm-hmm. they blunted some of his harder points. Yeah. Well, and I think in particular Ivanka. I mean, he he has deployed Ivanka as his. You know, you see, I respect women, um, despite all evidence to the contrary. That she's like his ace in the ace in the hole. He goes, ah, oh, but I have a female person to whom I'm directly related, who I'm not awful to, so I must be fine. It. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, but and also, I find. I mean, and I, you know, she's fully grown adult woman. She can cock yeah, her own flag. Not a child. <laughs> yeah, but like, why do people when he does that? Why do they have a go at Ivanka, not at Trump? Mm. Why? Mm. Why do people do that? And there is something yeah. about the standards and who people attack in these situations and who they think yeah. about that I just think is it seems very alien and very weird to me, um, and unhelpful. Well, it gets into a betrayal narrative, doesn't it? It gets into a, you know, as it, if you are being identified as a woman, then, and you are willing to stand behind this man whose policies and personal behavior are so anathema to women, then you're right. It's, it's, and it's like, it's very anti-woman, isn't it? Because it's not the responsibility of all, of, of any woman to speak for all women ever. Um, but there is an instinctive reaction that people have of like, how could you let this happen as a woman if you're de- if you're deploying your identity as a woman as the reason as the rationale? So, yeah, I I totally see what you're saying that uh, why 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 is it Ivanka who takes the the fall for that? But I mean, it might also be that there's no more hostility people can direct at Trump. They are already maxed out on Trump hostility. Well, yes, yeah, so, or you just you know like you ignore a bit what your own side does. So if we're having this conversation in the context of Republicans, there was yeah. there's some fairly new polling out uh, recently, and this this subscribes to all of the in-group, out-group hate and the different standards people hold people to. So if you ask, and this applies to both Democrats and Republicans, actually, um, if you ask people how important it is that they treat their other side with respect and how important that is to how they vote, they'll say, oh, yeah, the other side need to treat us with respect. That's like eight out of 10 level of importance. And then they'll say, how important is it to you that your candidate treats the other side with respect? And they'll say, oh, four out of 10 is important. So <laughs> right. it's half as important if it's your own yeah. side as if yeah. it's the other. You know, and the most powerful voices in these debates are almost always your own side because you're more likely to listen to them yeah um, and it's it's less probable so that's why republican voices speaking out against trump are very powerful or the same democratic ones about saying you know when when people don't like um uh, something that a, a democrat is doing or they think it's incompetent coming straight Different. to mind from my trip to new york last week is anybody calling out bill de blasio for the terrible subway system <laughs> Bill de Blasio has taken a lot of flag for a lot of things. Uh, yeah, I think I feel like that one's probably deserved. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's so actually I just come back to that point. That's really interesting because we do see a lot of that in politics of that. I have found this random Republican who is willing to endorse me Democratic candidate or I have found this random Democrat who's willing to endorse me endorse me Republican candidate. You're saying that's actually a, a politically effective strategy for persuasion. Of course it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because it's unlikely, you know, right. but it's, uh, yeah, you know, and also the swing voters, which are, in my personal view, you know, like America is some way behind Europe on understanding the importance of squeezing third party voters. Mm. Um, <laughs> because like you've spent so long with just a two party system. But yeah, um, uh, yeah like, the, yes, of course, it's very effective as a, as a measure because it shows people changing their mind and you can start to get a bit of a snowball effect behind it. Yeah. And it's unlikely. So I want to leave aside for for a minute the question of how we can speak to Republican voters who are just f- fundamentally on the other side of the issue. We'll come back to that later. But um, in the context of the Democratic primary, um, we are in an interesting point right now in a primary where we've got 
a ridiculous number of candidates, slightly fewer this week because we've had quite a few drop out, but um, nevertheless, quite a lot of candidates and obviously very strong feelings from the most ardent supporters of all of those candidates. Um, there will ultimately, obviously, in a Highlanders type fashion, there can be only one. Ultimately, only one person will be our nominee. Um, but in the course of this long extended primary process, as we've seen in 2016, as we saw even back in 2008 with Hillary um, versus Obama, very strong senses of identity are created behind the supporters of individual candidates. Um, but at the same time, we ultimately need to be able to come back to being on one side. What advice would you have for the party or for the candidates in terms of how we can run a battle that allows us to have honest disagreements and explore them, um, but ultimately remain a sense of party unity and keep a sense of collective kind of constructive disagreement within a family or is that even the right thing to do is that the completely wrong approach so i my personal view is that i wouldn't worry too much about Mm -hmm. that because i think people's how they identify if you're active in democratic primary elections right one you're already a bit weird um, Thank you. Most people, but most people are not. It's like anybody who's a really active member of a political party is probably not very normal, statistically sure. speaking. Um, so hello to all your other non-normal uh, podcast listeners. We're all together. Uh, but that kind of ties into it is that um, the natural thing is once someone's elected, provided they think they're elected or they're chosen fairly as a candidate, yeah. people tend to swing in behind them. And those that don't are fair, although they might be vocal, they're not super significant. I know this was a bit of a thing with Bernie and with, with Clinton, but like uh, I, I wouldn't worry overly about that. The bigger thing is about how do you conduct yourself in a way that doesn't give ginormous amounts of fodder to opposition or to create a mm-hmm. problem down the line like i would not worry overly about it in a in a primary um election beyond you know common sense should regulate in many ways right um at that point whether there is much common sense in politics is not always the case absolutely but i think i think the so other what thing about that- so what about that second point what should we be watching out for what what are the dangers for us in this primary process that might leaving aside the policy question and you know we might choose further left policies than the american electorate wants or whatever that's that's ultimately the the view, you know that's 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 how a primary process works we we choose but what are the kind of almost more of the signaling um uh behaviors that we should be perhaps mindful of um, in terms of how the non-democratic voter might be watching the primary? Well, so I suppose, which is one, yes, some non-democratic voters will be watching the primary, but not ginormous amounts of them um, on the whole, because it's not, so if it was that relevant, super relevant to them, they'd they'd be involved. There will be some issues that would get cut through. But um, I think um, the, the primary the primary audience at this point is obviously going to be your own internal Democrats. And I'd work with that, but I'd like to see candidates do more to look at policies that will reach out and actively appeal to different groups and talk mm-hmm. about depolarization. So a very interesting study that we did um, at Stanford, a colleague here did in, in Israel and Palestine actually was about, he gave some people shares to in in Israel to invest in the Palestinian stock market. And it demonstrated as a consequence that people were much less likely to vote for extremist parties. It had other benefits around women and financial literacy too, but that was very interesting. And I wonder if you could start seeing Democrats proposing policies that would reach out, but would also be appealing. So taking that model, if you were in West Virginia and you have just maybe lost your job because coal mining is going down, should part of your severance package include some shares in energy companies that are maybe on the way up? So solar energy or wind energy or offshore power energy, would that help alleviate some of the hostility that is growing in politics? And I would like to see democratic challenges looking at creating policies around that kind of space which i think would be distinctive and appealing and also show that they are reaching out i think that is a way to look at it rather than what 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 behavior do we want to see rather than what behavior do we not want to see interesting okay so creating more sense of shared values and investment and sense of collaboration as a society 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But you can, you can do that in ways that are not always, let's just, you know, a lot of people talk about conflict resolution or depolarization and they're just kind of like, let's put people in a room who disagree and we'll see yeah. how they get on. And there's a lot of evidence that show that what actually happens is people come out of those situations more entrenched, um, more, polar, more, entrenched and more polarized than they were than they went in. So they're yeah. really counterproductive uh, and ineffective. Um, and there's very little, like the, the sector as a whole is, is hallmarked by a real lack of evaluation to see what's going on so you know one of the biggest players in the sector i ended up going to one of their events and they're, they're lovely and they're great people but they only asked afterwards how my views were and you need to ask before to then work out what the difference is <laughs> and whether you made an effective intervention you right. know and and i find that that very surprising and often you'll you'll find that your interventions have almost no effect um, because it's such a complex multifaceted problem um, when people do do these things or they'll find it has an effect but it's not significant can you think of any examples of of interventions that have been statistically determined to be highly effective? What 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 has worked really well? I so mean, actually, I'm giving the Israeli Palestine as one example. What's the, yeah? What's the... So, so Psalms one was was very effective, um, and what they did there. Um, other stuff that is sometimes shown to be effective is um, education in schools. But the one that's really useful is about how people have those conversations and where mm -hmm. they are introduced. So I touched on this earlier. If you can find a area of common ground and you identify with somebody on that first before you go to political difference, then that means you have a much better conversation so for example find i don't know uh, well the the uh, a lot of the testing on this is actually done in the uk um if somebody identifies as being a member of the same football team as you and you have that conversation first then you're much more likely to find that you get on in other areas um and so it's finding that that's probably the way to do it um that to have those conversations effectively is not start with politics right. and that's statistically significant finding Interesting. So not even just starting with trying to find points of political agreement, but almost yeah. starting with trying to find points of cultural or personal agreement. So, something completely different. And I, right. would, I mean, like I would often steer clear of politics to start with. And I know I'll, I'll ask people about sports or exercise habits or food. I mean, there's a reason food is a great unifier, you know, like yeah. most people like a curry of some variety. Yeah. And, and if you go <laughs> through there or like, where are you from in the world or where have you traveled? But because of how, um, often people do these things now, like people have traveled to the same places if they have the same political views. You know, I, I lose count of the amount of people um, I know who visit are now coming out to California because they're progressives. And, you know, I don't meet very many Republicans out here, even who are traveling yeah. through. So like that, it, or in some ways it reinforces it and breaking out some of those habits can be, um, I think would be very helpful. I find that really fascinating because there is a sort of, I guess, a journalistic prejudice in politics where you quite often see people being very dismissive of politicians when they engage in popular culture. But what you're saying is actually it's not only a politically politically effective strategy to talk about popular culture, but actually it might be valuable for social cohesion in the community. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, clearly you have to talk about it authentically and reasonably and it doesn't have, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't work well. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> fake it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to fake an interest in American football. I still haven't got my head around it. Um, hey, but... I, it's one of the reasons I live here is I can never pretend to care. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Not my sport. laughs> You're almost bringing me back across the pond at this precise moment. <laughs> but college football, I like, I just don't quite understand why everybody cares about it so much, but they really do. Seriously, um, right? Like, it's not even the professional game. Well, I, I mean, tailgating's fun. Like, that is a good thing. I fully embrace tailgating. Yeah, but, but can't we just have a barbecue, some burgers yeah. and beer, and skip the sport? That'd be fine. Yeah, but, I mean, it, it is, like, I'd love to go and do a study, actually, <laughs> at tailgating of the groups of people who are there because they are already, they've found something in common right? Yeah. Which is they support one of those teams. So I wonder if people have better conversations. It always strikes me that if you did, um, so I guess for your British listeners, tailgating is, is normally where people get in a field before a big game and they'll show up with RVs or trucks yeah. or like whatever and they'll do a big barbecue with a bunch of booze and if you do that like i've spent a lot of time i spent a lot of time in cardiff and you have that much alcohol before a game things could occasionally get a bit leery like i love my home they do <laughs> but tailgating is super civilized yeah. and, and i wonder if that that's partly because of i say the environment but people already have like this in group and out group and this common talking point which is why they tend to get on 
Yeah, I would say my my overall experience of going to attending sporting events in America and attending sporting events in the UK is the American ones are way more family friendly, way more relaxed, way less hostile. Like baseball is an absolutely fantastic day out, which I commend to all of you. So there you go. That's my plug <laughs> for, for my national sport. Um, yeah. Anyway, what were we talking about? Yes, you see how, how look how well po- popular culture can break down any differences of opinion and and create connections between people how delightful is that um so so we've talked a bit about then how we as democratic party can engage um and how we can then engage within the primary for undecided voters on the republican side donald trump does not seem to be remotely interested in doing anything to foster um the kind of cohesion that we are talking about or in any way to ramp down depolarization. Um, And it feels quite like he's trying to ramp up a battle um, in which both sides will maximize the polarization of their own side and kind of leave the undecided or persuadable voters almost entirely out of it. Does that Am I just making that up or does that feel like... I think you're exactly right. And if you were someone who didn't like Trump's tactics in 2016, you probably already didn't vote for him and he got in. Um, And whereas, you know, like what would have happened if... What would have happened if you were a Republican voter between 2016 and 2020 that means you no longer want to vote for Trump if you thought he was all right in 2016? Yeah. Like there's not a big group and the poll numbers kind of reflect that a bit. You know, it's... uh, I don't think there's there's a huge big vote up for grabs there. Um, uh, for the Democrats to take um, out of Republicans. And so he's just doubling down, you know, and he's encouraging other people to double down. Yeah. So in that environment, um, as we are entering an, an, an environment in which the the other party has basically signaled his strategy of maximum polarization, yeah. and we think it potentially might be in our best interest to depolarize um, and, you know, maximize our own vote, but also create opportunities to build bridges across the other side, if we, if we stipulate that that's the case. Um, how, how would you suggest we go about doing that at a time when... Um, as I say, the opponent is is doing everything they can to make sure that doesn't happen. Almost like, how how do we face prompting depolarization in an invi- in a in a one sided unilateral way? So I think this is part of the problem, right? In that yeah. I don't I don't see the solution for this coming from political parties mm-hmm. um, because the incentives are so strong and it's so rational in many ways to. Um, for the Democrats to respond to that by also digging in a bit and polarizing, yeah. you know, like you, uh, which is get out what, our vote. It may, yeah, might be an electorally of effective strategy. Like, you know, in many ways, I expect everything to get worse until after 2020, and in the UK until uh, what a hearing thought. Well, but it, it's but it's yeah. it, like every it's gonna, the it's going to be a campaign. Or, yeah, I mean, like if I was running these campaigns, that's exactly what I did. And you know, I have run so not a presidential campaign, but I've run enough leadership campaigns in my time to know. Um, uh, like how how you win them, <laughs> and and that that's that's what the incentive is. So that's why I, I think it will all get worse, and I suspect Trump may get reelected, which is probably not delightful uh, news to your to your listeners. But I think that's probably more likely than not. Um, uh, the I suppose. The other thing that I really wanted to talk and explore with you about, which I'm drifting from your question, but is about the role of single issue movements in this debate, which Mm. progressives in particular have used. So that's part of my background as well. So I'm always really fascinated by the lack of scrutiny of organizations like move on or change.org or whatever because their email list and even with some of their lower open rates they still hit far more people with direct messages than most media outlets there is almost zero scrutiny of what happens or what the effects of that are so and these messages are very strong very unmediated designed to provoke engagement and response rather than to just inform and mm-hmm. all of that's for good reason as a campaigner if you're trying to raise money or get people to take an action or you know whatever i understand completely why people are doing it and it's a legitimate and important part of a democracy but what happens if all you do is you get messages from planned parenthood or from the nra let's pick one at the other end of the spectrum and then a gun control advocate moves in next door to you how are you likely to feel about them yeah and what's the consequence of that and what happens when there is no spectrum of views within that single issue thing and i would say that applies to the progressive movement as much as anything else 
Is it about a spectrum of views, though? Because, I mean, Planned Parenthood has a view of reproductive rights from which they will not shift, and and nor, yeah. and nor should they. That's that's not their function. But, uh, but I would argue, it sounds to me like what you're saying is one of the things that they're doing is, whether intentionally or otherwise, they're exacerbating the extremism of our politics by advocating their views so um, in, in, a, in particular ways that they do. Is there a way that organizations like that could actually provide tools to their supporters to make their case or engage in politics in a less divisive way? So, um, yes, I think there probably is. And you're exactly right about my hunch. And that's where I focus, like, my research is not, uh, like, in progress. Lots, And I should say, having just criticized some of these progressive organizations, they are also, and I've been really pleased by how they've engaged with me and how people want to try and test if they are creating polarization and are worried that they might be having that effect and i think that that's that deserves some applause um but the i think the the place i go to look at on this is actually the climate change debate mm -hmm. or around conservation so if you think about there's a real range of organizations who hold and some of the more I wouldn't even necessarily say extreme, but trenchant views and will mm -hmm. maybe may be more radical campaigners. So people on your Greenpeace end of the spectrum. And then you'll have people who will be a bit more thoughtful about how they engage. That's not to say Greenpeace aren't thoughtful, but will be slightly more considered and encourage people to think more, more gently. And that will be people like WWF. And WWF is successful because Greenpeace is and the same vice versa. Whereas if you have... Um, don't have a range of organizations engaging in different ways, then that's when I think a debate becomes particularly polarized. Got it. Um, so, and so, so yeah. Planned Parenthood, like, and I, to, to be clear, I fully support actually pro-life, but like, it's a fully legitimate way to campaign and engage people to do some of the democratic stuff that, uh, for a democracy that Planned Parenthood or pro-life organizations are doing. But if you don't have anybody in that middle ground also saying like, well, hey, let's think about this a bit more carefully, or let's do this, or how could we meet in the middle, then, and no one's doing that in sort of civil society or in campaigning, then how do you expect the population of politicians to end up there? Because there's no one rewarding them for leaving the extreme positions. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that you bring up this conversation about, and, and you said single issue groups, to be fair. Um, so change.org and uh, yeah, they're not, they're are not, yeah. They, yeah, exactly. They're, they're campaigning platforms and their structure is basically that the, the issues they might choose to engage on, you know, will be widely varying. There are, um, to me, the real interesting story of the past couple of years has been the rise of some very new organizations not outside of the kind of existing infrastructure, even of, of single issue organizations. I'm thinking of things like March for Our Lives and the um, the, the young people of Parkland and uh, the, the work that they've done on gun control. I'm thinking of things like Extinction Rebellion, um, which is, a you know, probably a more extreme than Greenpeace example of uh, climate activism. Um, and it feels to me like one of the reasons why organizations like that have sprung up is because this, the feeling in the populace, at least on on the democratic side and on the progressive side is that the stakes have been rising for some of these issues and with rising stakes comes increasing intensity and that increasing intensity is manifesting itself in a certain impatience and a lack of um a, a perhaps understandable i i actually have a lot of sympathy for it an understandable lack of patience with um the dysfunctional political process that has allowed people to get to these points yeah. and i kind of feel like we need to respect that impatience because it comes from a place of truth but also need to find a way of um using that impatience effectively and constructively yeah and what well, and i think i also respect that impatience um but i do think that there's a how am I then going to get to my ends and how yeah. am I going to get there and is it by me digging in or is it maybe by finding some people who work with me who like can complement the more extreme views that I do so yes Extinction Rebellion are are very effective but what I find interesting there is the cognitive dissonance that mm -hmm. often gets introduced so are your listeners familiar with Extinction Rebellion? Um, I, do, I don't know if they will be, but Extinction Rebellion, do you want to give a potted history or a quick Yeah, so in, in essence, it like um, it's a very strong um, uh, climate change campaigning group that really is pushing on trying to get action and action taken now and will often do direct forms of, of you know, direct intervention and protest and civil disobedience that will be quite challenging. So sh shutting down bridges or threatening to shut down airports or all of that kind of stuff. And what's been really surprising is the amount of 
stuff that will inconvenience people because that's what that that type of protest that's, does. that's the whole point yeah but yeah um but the actually the support they've got in the populace as a consequence yeah. despite like normally people you know take longer getting to work or get very disruptive going on their holiday they get very angry about it whereas this time people are like no well actually they've got a bit of a point and much more so than people expected one of the things that's happened there is the people who front up extinction rebellion at least in the uk are very often like your gran or, mm -hmm. <laughs> or older white people. And there's certainly a racial element to that, which we could dig into, though I suspect others might be better to talk about it. Um, but that actually introduces some dissonance about what you expect a protester to be. Interesting. And how angry you can get with them. So it's in the same way that Greenham Common, one of the reasons that they got traction for so long was it was women doing the protest mm -hmm. or it was people's grands going up and doing it. And that wasn't what they, what they were expecting to see. And that is, again, where the unusual voices, it sort of breaks down your gut reaction and takes you from, to use Kahneman, from system one thinking to system two thinking. That means you have to put a bit more effort into what you're doing. And you're like, oh, that wasn't expected. Maybe I need to rethink about this. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that that resonates too with Moms Demand Action, which is another very effective yep. um, gun control organization. Exactly. Um, whose whole initiative is is based on the premise of you know we are the, you know mothers of America, effectively speaking up, as you say, literally, kind of typically white suburban mothers. Um, you know, although by no means exclusively. And please be clear, there are people of all races and, and ethnicities and um, and backgrounds in these organizations. But I think what you're talking about is a signaling effect, aren't you? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's exactly what it is. Interesting. So to sum up, we've covered a lot of ground here. It sounds like you're saying, and and sorry if this is a grim description of the of where you think we are. Um, basically, the 2020 election is going to be more or less a shit show. Of uh, um, yeah. Oh, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, really go good. for it. And not, yeah. I've not sworn for an hour. This is like a world record for me. Well done, Ali. Congratulations. <laughs> I release you from the bonds. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks. <laughs> there you go. Um, so the 2020 election is probably going to be ugly on both sides because there is significant political advantage in heightening the polarization rather than reducing it. But perhaps outside of the election cycle, um, and particularly working with groups around specific issues where we're trying to create broader consensus, maybe there would be other ways that we can start to depolarize for the longer term. Is that more or less the conclusion we've come yeah. to? Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's all going to get worse before it gets better. And it will Yay. get a bit, like, over the next year, it will get worse. And and to be clear, Democrats will bear some responsibility for that as sure. well as Republicans. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they will, but, but everybody will be inclined to pretend the other side is worse. Yeah. But I think so. And I think I think that's all correct and probably true. I think we can think longer term. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting in this election is I think for the first time I'm seeing people start to get really serious on the Democratic side about whether political structures are actually well set up right now for for actually delivering solutions, you know, as we've talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And I think that's something I think we will need to keep reflecting on, because I do think that we have, um, we have set up a set of political structures. There's also media structures, to be fair, and as you alluded to, kind of social and societal structures. Um, but there are political structural issues that have rewarded polarization um, to a degree that I don't think we'd we'd prepared for both in how Congress operates and how the, how the presidency operates. Um, so I think we're going to have to get serious about thinking and doing more to make that less inherent in the system. Yeah. yeah. Right. It, and it's, it, yeah, it's, it's remarkably tough and going to be probably take decades to undo. Yeah. Um, well, normally, to, to be really cheery, I don't know, really cheery now. <laughs> Normally, if you look at, it's unusual this happens to this extent in a developed democracy. Um, but normally the way that this kind of polarization resolves itself is with some kind of extreme shock. And very often that's war or violence right. or some kind of climate catastrophe or a very strong recession, but then recession themselves are linked to violence and, you know, yeah. winter is coming. Yeah. So we can all feel extra cheery about what the next well, few years might involve. Well, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I mean, you know, it's I've never felt more purposeful and yeah. um, also more like the challenge has never been bigger. It's right. ginormous. I think it's it's one of the things that I think a lot about is people think of America as a new country, but actually we're a very old constitution. And I think 
other countries, because we've endured a couple hundred years of relative stability and relative peace compared to other countries which have had more um, more fundamental um, structural problems over that time, perhaps, um, we've never had to fundamentally relook at our governing systems. Um, we've been able to carry on with um, systems that have perhaps outgrown their usefulness. Um, and I think Britain is in a, in a way is in a very similar situation. Another country, the UK, which has enjoyed kind of a long-standing structural um, constitutional system. Um, and it's just interesting to reflect on the fact that both of those countries, very old standing, long-standing constitutions, both of them are kind of suffering democratic shocks at a moment that, that are causing people to rethink whether the political systems are, are well-constructed. Um, and I wonder where that's going to lead us. Yeah, I think... I don't have a good answer for you. Just go back it's to where we not even to really where we question. started. Just a, yeah, just like I, no, and it's a great thought, and I have many similar ones, but I don't have a great answer for where it's going to end up. Yeah, but that the road there is going to be pretty ugly. Yeah, I think it's for certain. So buckle your seatbelt, basically. Yeah. Listen, it's been great talking to you. Um, despite coming to a somewhat grim conclusion, um, but I think you know. <laughs> It's it's going to be quite a ride ahead of us, but I think the good news is that all of us can be active and effective and thoughtful, and in our day to day lives, we can be, I think, helpful in and thoughtful about how we help move the country forward, especially if we're we're aware of what the problems are. And that's it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at KarenJR. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. Um, if you are an American red, uh, living overseas, um, please do register to vote and request your absentee ballot each year. Um, you can do that by going to votefromabroad.org. If you are an American living back in the US, uh, please register and request, uh, register to vote there. Um, the website you need is vote.org. Um, I will definitely be recording a debate recap episode next week for the third Democratic uh, presidential debate. So definitely watch out for that. Um, I will be hopefully doing a panel to recap it. Um, but given that that debate takes place on Thursday night and we are unlikely to be able to watch it until late on Friday night, it might be that next week's episode comes a little bit late. So possibly look for it on Saturday morning. Um, watch this space. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Speak to you then.